Father God, you are a good and glorious God. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for being our creator. We thank you for being our sustainer. We thank you for being the one who gives us light and life. We thank you, Lord, especially at this Christmas season for sending your son into the world as a human being, Lord, to live that perfect, holy, righteous life that we never can, never could. And then ultimately, Lord, bearing the price for our sins in His body at Calvary. Oh Lord, may our hearts be filled with just tremendous joy of the season. May our hearts be filled with the peace of the season. Lord, may our hearts be filled with the generosity of the season. Lord, may we dwell deeply on your Son this Christmas time. Lord, we pray that you would bless us now by the by your word. Lord, how we would put your word into practice in our lives. And may glory be brought to you and your son. We pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Times are tough. Hopes and dreams have been shattered. Things are not as you imagine them to be. Promises have vanished. Expectations long gone. Even a bleakness permeates. Where is the hope? Where is the hope? And, and no, I'm, I'm not talking about recent times, but rather a period of history some 2,000 plus years ago when life was not just rough for the Jewish nation, it seemed utterly hopeless. Sin abounded and God had gone silent. For some 400 years, the nation of Israel would not hear anything from their God who had previously given them such tremendous promises. Now, just by way of a brief history lesson, just prior to this 400 years of silence, the Persians were ruling over the nation of Israel. This is at the end of the Babylonian captivity when Nehemiah was allowed to go back to Jerusalem in order to rebuild the city, uh, the wall, followed by the temple. And even as the clouds seemed to be parting, the nation quickly fell back into ongoing sin to which the prophet Malachi was dispatched to rebuke them and, and warn them of further judgment. However, as God often does, he, he tempered this with the fact that the promised Messiah was still to come. This was in the early 400s B.C. 
Then after Malachi, God's judgment began as God turned his face away from his people for those 400 years. We, we know those years as the intertestamental period, that time between Old Testament and New Testaments. And while the Persians maintained ultimate control over Israel, the Jews were allowed to govern themselves. This would last through 332 BC until Alexander the Great stepped in, conquering everything in his path. This brought on a a period called the Hellenistic or Greek period from 332 to 142 BC, where you had Jews that were heavily influenced by the Greek language and the Greek culture. And after this period, you saw other nations step in and take rule over the Jews, such as the Ptolemies of Egypt, followed by the Seleucids of Syria each treating the Jews in a a less than free kind of way. The Seleucids was when you saw Antiochus Epiphanes plunder and brutally slaughter the Jews, including the desecrating of the temple that Daniel speaks of in chapters 8 and 11. Then overlapping this era was the Maccabean and Hasmonean period from 166 to 160, or excuse me, to 63 BC, which is when you had uh, Jews like Mattathias and the rest of the Maccabeus family who led revolts and won independence for the Jews. This was followed by John Hyrcanus and then Aristobulus, who had to keep fighting the Seleucids to maintain control, which ultimately led to the establishment of Judea, a predominantly Jewish independent state. Until 63 BC, when the Romans take over. The Jews were now under Roman authority, and this begins the reign of the Caesars as well as the Herods, who were placed as kings over Israel, starting with Herod Antipater I, who was really a puppet of Rome, and as we would see, most of them were. You had Herod the Great, Herod's sons and grandson, including Herod Agrippa. When Jesus was born, it was Herod the Great who was in power. And while Herod the Great's father, Antipater, was governor of Judea, Herod the Great himself was prefect of Galilee, kind of a governor. It was in 40 BC that Octavian and Antony declared Herod to be the king of the Jews. Now, there's one little problem. He wasn't really Jewish. No, he was was an Idumean, an Edomite. And so he married Mariamna, a Jewish heiress of the house of Hasmonean, to hopefully make himself a little bit more acceptable, a little more palatable to the Jews as their king. Now, Herod actually had some some pluses working for him in that he was an extremely capable military leader, public speaker and diplomat. He also built many great things, including a a rebuilding of the Jewish temple beginning in 19 BC. But Herod also had a dark side. He was cruel and merciless. He was prone to jealousy, suspicion, and was constantly fearful of his place of power being usurped. And you think, we've got problems in 2022, right? All of this to say, again, where is the hope? 
Where is the hope for the Jewish people? For 400 years, all the people saw was God's heavy hand of judgment upon them and and rightfully due to their sin. But all of that was about to change because hope was finally on its way. But what about that hope? Where did that hope even come from? Well, it came from a series of promises over literally thousands of years. It had always been there, but as some of you may attest, when you are walking through the middle of the fire, it can kind of be difficult to see anything else. It can be difficult to be hope-filled when you're walking through the valley of the shadow of death. I mean, what kind of promises were there to give them hope? Oh, tremendous promises, really good promises, life-changing promises, even eternal promises. Promises made to his people by an unchanging God who cannot lie. But to understand them properly, we have to go back a ways. We have to go back to the beginning, kind of once upon a time and all of that. So if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Genesis chapter 3 as we look at promises through prophecy, the first of which being the promise of a Messiah in the garden. The promise of a Messiah in the garden. Again, Genesis chapter 3. Now before we read verse 15, which will be our little focus here. I want you to remember how God created the universe, including the earth and everything in it, along with the first man and woman, Adam and Eve, and how he then placed them into this this idyllic garden to cultivate it and keep it. They had everything they needed and were given one pretty simple command. Right, We see this in Genesis 2.16. I'm just going to read this. From any tree of the garden you may eat freely. This is the Lord speaking to them. But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. And then of course the, the serpent. Satan deceives Eve. And both she and Adam knowingly eat the forbidden fruit, bringing in sin and death and separation from God into the world. We know from other places in the scriptures that this consequence of death does not simply mean physical death, but includes spiritual death, separation from God, punishment even in hell. Now friends, this is kind of what we call a cliffhanger right here. Cliffhanger, because it would seem that at this point in the story, there was no real hope for anybody. Adam and Eve used to have direct fellowship with God in the garden. He walked with them. He talked with them. He spoke to them. But now they would be banished from his presence. They would be forced to live outside the protection and provision of the garden. And this sin and separation from God would now apply to all people everywhere as Adam's sin-cursed seed is passed on to all humanity. 
People would now be created even in the womb with what we call a a sin nature. And as well, we would choose to sin once we were able and all would fall short of the glory of God. And really, the story, it just could have ended there, could it not have? I mean, God could have just said, you know what, forget it. Forget about the human race. I'm sorry I made them. I'm sorry I gave them any sort of ability to decide things on their own. I'm just going to scrap the whole mess. And, And he just about did that when we get to the flood, didn't he? Save for Noah and his family. Hence, we, we, we see here in Genesis even the first glimpse of a need for a Savior. Someone who could make things right between us and God. Someone who could reconcile us back to God. Bring us back and restore the fellowship that we once had with Him. And remember, friends, God made His creation. He made people for a reason. That we would bring Him glory to glorify Him eternally and to be a gift of forever worshipers for His Son. The problem now is that people were no longer able to bring glory to God and are no longer fit to be the Son's worshipers because we have been infected through and through by sin. And God, along with His Son, is holy and righteous. So the only true worshipers that could live with the Father and the Son for all eternity would be those that would also be holy and righteous, hence our problem. But God, God enacted a plan that He had already designed in eternity past in anticipation of man's sin and rebellion and that plan would be for a once for all sacrifice that would be made on behalf of sinful mankind so that God's wrath could be satisfied and 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 man's sin could be forgiven and the sinner could be pronounced justified made holy and righteous before a holy and righteous God This would allow for a renewed fellowship between God and His creation as well as worshipers for His Son. And this would also involve at some point in the future the removal of sin completely. The removal of sin and death and even the agent most associated with these, Satan himself. And this would be done through God's Messiah. God's ultimate anointed Savior of the world and final judge. Now, we bring up this word Messiah. So maybe just for a moment here, we should make sure that we understand what this word means. The English word for Messiah, Messiah is not even used until Daniel 9 and verse 25, where we read the Messiah, the Prince. Before it's always anointed or anointed one we get to the new testament we have matthew 1 and verse 1 which states the record meaning the book of the genealogy of jesus the messiah the son of david the son of abraham jesus from the hebrew yeshua or joshua meaning the lord saves and messiah the greek word there is christos christ which means anointed one 
Anointed one is also the Old Testament meaning as well from the Hebrew word Mashiach. Both of these refer to an act of consecration whereby an individual is set apart to serve God and then anointed with oil. The pouring of oil on someone or something signified inducting it into sacred use. The anointing of a leader, such as a a king or a priest, demonstrated that these leaders had an important position, set apart, ordained, and blessed by God. You know, a modern equivalent for us today would probably be along the lines of a coronation ceremony for a king or queen who are being set apart from everyone else and being given certain powers and authority. We have that even with our inauguration day for our president of the United States who also receives a certain authority and power. The biggie difference being that the biblical definition of anointing means specifically to be set apart unto God and for his service. And glory. Now, the first picture we see of this Messiah, I believe, is strongly implied in Genesis 3 and verse 15. So we'll go ahead and look there, Genesis 3 and verse 15, where God is now handing out consequences for sin, for man and the woman and the serpent, and he hands out curses to the serpent, Satan. And Adam and Eve for their disobedience. And he starts with the serpent in a physical sense. Even in verse 14 where God says, you can look there. To the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you more than cattle. And more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And then he moves on to dealing with the serpent. But in a more spiritual sense in verse 15 when he says... And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. Now, this passage can be kind of an interpretive toughie. And and we're not going to this morning spend the, the time examining all of the different possibilities. So rather, I'm just going to cut to the chase and tell you the conclusion that I have come to after doing my own study, which is that it holds messianic implications. For what we see is that after God has cursed the physical serpent or snake, right? And we could say that this is possibly as a perpetual reminder to all of us of the temptation and the fall. I mean, seriously, how many of you like snakes? Do you enjoy snakes out there, right? Not many. Not many. I remember I lived with a snake once in high school with a... With a uh, um, when I went to school back uh, back east, and uh, snake's name was Pretzel, and uh, it was a boa constrictor, and uh, Pretzel, yeah, luckily didn't eat us, but ate other, you know, furry creatures, so. But then he turns his attention to the serpent in that spiritual sense, 
where the scriptures elsewhere describe the serpent as Satan himself, the devil, the serpent of old, where God dashes any hope that Satan might have of totally deceiving the human race by saying that he would make Satan and the woman enemies. And more specifically, her seed being an enemy of his seed, her offspring being an enemy of his offspring. And I believe the best way to understand the woman's seed or offspring here is first of believers, Christians. The seed or offspring of Satan as unbelievers or children of the devil as John 8.44 refers to them. Then, in the next phrase, the definition of seed becomes even more specific. He shall bruise, or the word can be translated crush. He shall crush you on the head. And this seems to to be making an obvious reference to a single person. Even the Messiah, the chosen one, anointed by God to bring salvation to his people by crushing and defeating the one who has the power of death, namely Satan. Romans 16 and verse 20 tells us the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Hebrews 2 and verse 14 referring to Jesus that through death he, Jesus, might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. Yes, Satan will bruise the Messiah's heel, meaning cause him to suffer to some degree, which is certainly true when Jesus goes to the cross, but Jesus would have the ultimate crushing victory. And all of this to say would take this anointed one set apart by God, the Messiah, the Christ, to crush sin and death and Satan and make it possible for us to be reconciled back to God to worship Him and live with Him for all eternity. Now, what we see here in Genesis 3.15 then is not just the, the what I believe is the first proclamation of the gospel in Scripture, but by implication. Again, a prophetic passage looking forward to The Messiah. Now at the time of Moses who wrote Genesis, this understanding of the Messiah was not as as clear or complete as you or I say view it now. It's like putting together a puzzle, right? You you dump all the pieces out on the table there and you turn them all so you can see the the, the top side of them, and you, if you weren't looking at the, the box top, you would probably have no idea what you were, what kind of a picture you were trying to make or create, and then you start by, <coughs> excuse me, finding those straight edge pieces and get the frame, and then you start filling it in, and it starts becoming clearer and clearer as time goes on what the picture is that you are building. And it's the same where the Messiah is concerned. As time goes by, uh, chronologically speaking, in, 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 in biblical history, more and more prophets are given insight, and more and more details come to light about the Messiah. And, and what we see then in Scripture, in this chronological fashion, then is a, a progression and advancing of the Messiah concept that starts to become clearer and clearer to us. New and more details are added, including more prophecy and specifics of how to identify Messiah. 
So what else does the Old Testament say then about this Messiah, God's anointed one? Well, just go ahead and move from there to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12, where we see our, uh, our second promise here. Promise of a Messiah through Abraham. Promise of a Messiah through Abraham. So moving ahead through time, we get to approximately, oh, 2100 B.C. And again, by implication, we see that the Messiah must come from the, the family tree of Abraham. Look as I read Genesis 12 and verse 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, that of course was before he changed his name to Abraham. The Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And you think, well, that's some tremendous words, but <laughs> what does that have to do with the Messiah? Turn to Genesis 13, friends. Genesis 13, beginning in verse 14. Now the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, that was his nephew, Now, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land which you see, I will give it to you and to your descendants forever. Hmm. Okay, maybe another piece of the puzzle there let's look at genesis 17 and verse 7 genesis 17 and verse 7 where then god promises an everlasting covenant to be god to you abram and to your descendants after you. So we're having these words like forever and everlasting. God says to Abraham, if we were to turn to Genesis 22 and verse 18, he says, your seed, meaning descendants, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. And then, of course, this side of the cross, our side of the cross, friends, we again have the benefit of New Testament Scripture sometimes explaining the old. Uh, with this, we want to now fast forward to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3, beginning in verse 8. We're just going to look at two verses here. If you don't make it there, that's okay. I'm going to read them to you. Galatians 3 and verse 8. In these texts, Paul now gives us a fuller understanding of what the seed is being referred to back in Genesis 22:18. He says in Galatians 3 and verse 8, the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations will be blessed in you. That's him quoting chapter 12 and verse 3. And then we skip down to verse 16, where Paul writes, Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, 
but rather to one and to your seed that is Christ. Christ, the anointed. It's pretty clear on this one, isn't he? All the promises made to Abraham were for the benefit of his descendants, the greatest of these being the Lord Jesus Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, the Messiah. Now, let's return to the Old Testament. But we're going to fast forward some 650 years now to about 1450 B.C. and the time of Moses. So, Uh, Sorry, we're going to jump back to Exodus 19. Exodus 19. And we see our third promise, the promise of a Messiah through Moses. And here the people find themselves under this Mosaic covenant, which is basically defined in Exodus 19 and verses 5 and 6, when God says through Moses to the people, now then, If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, just pause and let me put in some parentheses here, just to say that the covenant uh, being the system of law that was laid out for them in the form of the Ten Commandments, as well as all of the other uh, commands that would govern their lives given there in the desert of Sinai. He continues... Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Okay, keep that in mind while we turn to Deuteronomy 18. Deuteronomy 18. Here, God will get even more specific with blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. And during this time, God continues with his prophecy of a future Messiah. Look with me, Deuteronomy 18, beginning in verse 15. Moses tells the people, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, From among you, from your countrymen, you shall listen to him. And then skip down to verse 18 where God himself says, I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. You say, well, oh, well, wait a minute, hold on a sec there, Pastor, because couldn't this just be referring to a prophet, you know, such as Joshua, somebody who would take, out, take over after Moses? And yes, this is now one of those passages that applies to the near future as well as the far future. And we know this is the case because if we were to jump ahead to Acts 3 and verses 22 to 23, don't turn there, just know that 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 passage then quotes this in reference to Jesus, the passage we just read in Deuteronomy, that Jesus ultimately is being referred to. And truth is, there's actually many parallels between Moses and Jesus. They were both instigators of the new phases of spiritual life for the people, 
And along with this, both were miraculously spared in infancy. Both reject a royal court for the sake of serving the people of God. Both exhibit just an intense compassion for other people. Both commune face to face with God the Father. And each mediates a covenant of redemption. Moses introducing the old covenant in the form of the law. And Jesus, the new covenant in grace. Now, we might ask, so did the people succeed as a nation in keeping God's original covenant? And of course, the answer is no, not by a long shot, right? Not by a long shot. In fact, what did happen is that the nation of Israel began a pattern throughout the years where they would sin against God. God would chastise them and discipline them and This was usually then followed by a period of repentance, even if it was sometimes a a short-lived period of repentance, and then turning back to their sin. And what was the predominant sin of the people struggling with as a nation? Idolatry. Idolatry was, was the biggie. It was the kicker. They were constantly turning their hearts away from God and following pagan gods and, and idols of, of the people that they were either living amongst or with, uh, or who were their kings at the time. Now, of course, one of the worst consequences was when the people were taken and exiled from Jerusalem to Babylon, where they became slaves of the Chaldeans, 605 to 536 B.C. And it wasn't too long after that that they were then plunged into that 400 years of silence between the Old and New Covenants. And again, we see this need for a Messiah Savior. Okay, so let's fast forward again. Let's go ahead 450 years to approximately 1000 B.C. to the time of King David. And turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7. Where we see our fourth promise here. The promise of a Messiah through David. Promises of a Messiah through David. This is when the understanding of a Messiah for Israel really started to take clearer shape or form. Here we have God telling Nathan the prophet what to tell God's servant, King David, about the covenant that God is now making with David. And we read this in 2 Samuel chapter 7, beginning verse 12. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. And you go, oh, wait, just a minute. Everything sounded good until you got to that last little bit there about uh, him committing iniquity. And I will correct him with the rod of men, the strokes of the son of men. Because again, friends, this is one of those uh, passages that has near and far understandings. The near referring to those who would be all of those intermediary uh, kings uh, who would need uh, God's chastening. The farther future 
Context being Jesus, who wouldn't need that chastening because, of course, he would be the sinless Lamb of God. We continue on in verse 15. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. Friends, who but the Messiah, the Son of God, could have an everlasting forever kingdom. Now, King David, as the psalmist, also understood of the Messiah to come. When we read in Psalm 110, verses 1 to 2, a psalm of David, the Lord, meaning Yahweh, says to my Lord, Jesus the Christ, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And the Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of your enemies. And again, what we so often see regarding these prophetic messianic passages is confirmation in the New Testament that the Messiah being spoken of here is indeed Jesus the Christ. Now during the time of of Israel's Babylonian captivity, who could forget Isaiah's understanding of the Messiah as coming from the line of David, son of Jesse, even through the Davidic dynasty, or even though we could say the Davidic dynasty was almost extinct. As the Lord said through the prophet Isaiah in chapter 11, verse 1, then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. So, friends, what we have seen so far is that the Messiah was was always a part of God's plan. First hinted at back as far as Genesis chapter 3, but then we see also by implication with Abraham, Moses most specifically is coming from the kingly line of David. And there are all kinds of other Old Testament prophecies and promises concerning the Messiah. This takes us to our, our fifth point. Promise of a Messiah through the prophets. And here's just a few classic passages, kind of like the oldies and the goodies, you might say, right? Such as Isaiah 9 and verses 6 to 7, which is another 300 years after David, now in some 700 B.C. Go ahead and turn there, Isaiah chapter 9. I think just about all of you should be familiar with this passage. The context of Isaiah 9 looks back as far as the uh, Assyrian invasion of Israel from 2 Kings chapter 15. It also would have in mind the Babylonian invasion and other foreign oppressors of Israel. But how Israel, who has been walking in darkness, will see what? A great light. It's the theme of our Christmas concert next week. This great light, the light of the world. Then we get to verse 6 in Isaiah 9 and that wonderful, familiar description of the Messiah who will come to rescue and restore Israel. (coughs) For a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. And the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, and Prince of Peace. 
<clears throat> there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Don't you just love that? He will accomplish this. Now, we read this passage and, and we should be able to understand how Israel saw this Messiah, and we've said this before, more as a, a political figure, maybe a political powerhouse, somebody with military might who would indeed free Israel from her oppressors. They saw Messiah in more of that kind of physical, literal sense. They missed some of the spiritual elements of his being wonderful Counselor, bringing supernatural wisdom from above. They missed him being mighty God who cannot just conquer kingdoms, but who conquers rulers and powers and world forces of darkness and spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. And they missed the fact that his eternal father, he will, he will spiritually and eternally adopt his sons and daughters, those who would believe in him. And they miss the fact that this Prince of Peace won't just bring peace among the nations, but will bring spiritual peace, reconciling holy God with sinful man. Turn, friends, to Jeremiah 23. Just a little bit over to the right there. Jeremiah being right next to Isaiah there. Jeremiah 23, beginning in verse 5. We advance another Hundred years or so, around 600 B.C. And here the Lord, through the prophet Jeremiah, has been addressing the evil, wicked leaders of Israel, saying this in Jeremiah 23 uh, and verse 1, actually, Woe to the shepherds who are destroying and scattering the sheep of my pasture. Now skip down to verse 5. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. And he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. And in his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is his name by which he will be called. I love this. That was just me. That wasn't the scripture. The Lord, our righteousness. Lord, our righteousness. Last week I mentioned to you 1 John chapter 2 and verse 1, which refers to Jesus Christ, the righteous. The righteous. Turn to Daniel 7. Keep going to the right there. Just keep going to the right. Daniel chapter 7. Daniel has been in service to the royal court while exiled in Babylon. And God has been showing him just some incredible, really extraordinary things by way of future prophecies in the form of visions and dreams. Chapter 7, beginning in verse 13. Daniel says this, I kept looking in the night visions... And behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days, 
Well, just guess who the Son of Man is, and now guess who the Ancient of Days is. He came up to the Ancient of Days, it was, was presented before him, and to him, meaning the Son of Man, was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Again, the Son of Man being Jesus, the Ancient of Days being God the Father. Over in Matthew 26, you don't have to turn there, but in in verses 63 and 64 during his trial, when Jesus was asked by the high priest, tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Daniel 9, as I mentioned earlier, also refers to Messiah, the Prince and then we have some, some other prophecies that are tremendous, even at, especially at Christmas time. Some that surround the birth of Messiah, such as Isaiah 7 and verse 14, which tells us that the Messiah will be miraculously born of a virgin. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name, what? Emmanuel. Which means God with us. And again, what we see here is a passage that has both a near and far fulfillment. The context of that passage is King Ahaz of Judah. Who's sitting on the throne in Jerusalem with some of Judah's enemies waging war against them, including even the king of Israel, when God directs Isaiah to encourage Ahaz not to be fearful, for the Lord will indeed protect Judah, and no harm will come to her. Well, the Lord even tells Ahaz to ask him for a sign, so that Ahaz would know that this is true. And Ahaz's response is, uh, I, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. See that in verse 12. Then Isaiah steps in and he he speaks to all of Judah, the house of David, and he gives the prophecy of the virgin with child who will bear a son, Emmanuel. And in the near fulfillment, this ends up being Isaiah's wife who bears the son and the prophecy comes to pass in that near context. And Judah is spared. And of course, the future fulfillment being the virgin Mary Bearing Jesus as Emmanuel or God with us. Keep going to the right. Turn to Micah. Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. Micah 5 and verse 2. It's a little tough for you there to get Micah right in between. Right after Jonah there, wedged in between Jonah and Nahum. Micah 5 and verse 2 tells us specifically where the Messiah will come from. The context has verse 1, speaking of the fact that Babylon has laid siege against Israel and King Zedekiah has been captured. 
But to give hope to the nation, Micah prophesies about the Messiah, saying this in verse 2, But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, town, uh, by the way, that, that just was a, a town south of Jerusalem. It, it, it's differentiated between the Galilean town of the same name. But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you, one will go forth from me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. In other words, this town was small in size, but rather big in stature, as two mighty kings would come from her, first David, followed by Jesus. Furthermore, Bethlehem means house of bread. Isn't that interesting? And how appropriate, how fitting that the bread of life would come from the house of bread. In Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, it continues with prophecy concerning the Messiah, even as a youth. Quote, when Israel was a youth, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son, end quote. And of course, this is in reference to when Joseph, Mary, and Jesus fled Bethlehem for Egypt during the time that Herod was slaughtering all of the baby boys. Then once Herod dies, they return and, of course, settle into Nazareth. And, of course, there's other passages. We have Isaiah 53, where the Messiah is identified as the suffering servant. And in details, it details all that the Messiah would have to endure. So, friends, the basic Old Testament understanding of the Messiah is of a prophet, priest, and king. That of someone who would bring salvation to Israel and would lead Israel into an eternal Future And the Jewish nation believed this in a, in a national sense. They believed it in that political sense, maybe even in a military sense. Not sure how many really understood it, though, in a spiritual sense. And the problem the Jewish nation had with Jesus is that in their minds, he did not fit the, the messianic picture at all. And yet he clearly is a prophet. In that he leads into all truth. He is a priest in that he intercedes for his people. And he is a king. Ruling and reigning over his people. And of course on this side of the cross. We see quite clearly that Jesus more than fits the bill for Messiah. One writer says this. Israel's problem which she shares with mankind can only be solved by the making of a covenant whose surety and focal point is both a personal savior and sovereign Lord. End quote. So what, what, do we, what do we do with these promises that we have learned about this morning? And, and, and next week we'll get even closer to the birth with some more promises and then a little bit closer and as a friend of mine has said in the past we'll get jesus born on christmas isn't that cool that we get to have sunday service on christmas and 
and and just uh, witness the birth of Christ from the pages of Scripture on that day. But what do we do with these these things that we have learned this morning? And and as we go on through this Christmas season and go back to that original question that I posed of where is the hope? Because when I gave you that scenario at the beginning, it probably could we could make a case that it would apply to some degree to us today. That there are a lot of people out there in the world asking this question, where is the hope? Where was the hope then? Where is the hope now? Is there a a hope for the future? Where is the hope in our even political or social or disease-ridden climate of the day? Where is the hope for Christmas 2022? And of course, friends, the hope, as you have learned this morning, is from this Messiah, the anointed, the Christ, the Lord Jesus. And I just want you to start dwelling on, thinking about, meditating on some of these tremendous truths at Christmas time. For instance, know that we have a loving, gracious, merciful God who chose not to just scrap everything entirely, but to provide a way for our reconciliation with Him. That we would have a Savior. That we would see that need for the Savior and know that Jesus indeed is the Savior. Friends, we see, and and I would have you just think much about the fact that we have a sovereign God We have a sovereign God that has a plan and he always has had a plan. And know that we have a promise keeping God, a God who cannot lie. Who has given promises of a Messiah that have all come true. He doesn't mislead. He doesn't change. And so maybe we could thank him. Maybe we could praise him. Maybe we could give him glory. And then because we have seen all of these past promises come true, then now we absolutely know that there is a hope for the future. There is a hope for those future promises that they too will indeed come true. Promises of a son's return. Promises of justice and consequence. Promises of salvation fulfilled. And along with God's attributes that we recently studied from Psalm 145, I just want to encourage you to dwell deeply on these truths throughout this Christmas season. And with that then, be ready, be willing, be looking for the occasion to share the hope that is within you, Christian. Amen? Yeah, amen. Let's pray. Father God. We thank you, Lord, for these great promises that we are so blessed to be standing where we are this side of the cross and be able to look back and see them all come true. Oh, and what, how that encourages us with future promises and then how we would live for the day, Lord, and live in light of those future promises. And I pray, Lord, during this Christmas season, too, that we would be quick and ready and willing to tell people that their hope is in the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray for anyone here that has yet to 
put their hope in Christ, that they would do so even right now, this very moment, that they would pray a prayer of repentance and trust in Jesus. And Lord, we pray all of this in your Son, Jesus' name, and all God's people said, and Merry Christmas. Scripture quotations taken from the New American Standard Bible. Copyright by the Lockman Foundation.